You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. Um, And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. So today's Bible reading will be taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 8 to chapter 10, verse 34. I'll be reading from the CSB version. Uh, We'd encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. The Lord sent a message against Jacob. It came against Israel. All the people, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, will know it. They will say with pride and arrogance, The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with cut stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. The Lord has raised up Rezin's adversaries against him and stirred up his enemies. Aram from the east and Philistia from the west have consumed Israel with open mouths. In all this, His anger has not turned away, and his hand is still raised to strike. The people did not turn to him who struck them, and they did not seek the Lord of armies. So the Lord cut off Israel's head and tail, palm branch and reed in a single day. The head is the elder, the honored one. The tail is a prophet, the one teaching lies. The leaders of the people mislead them, and those they mislead are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over Israel's young men and has no compassion on its fatherless and widows. For everyone is a godless evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. In all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. For wickedness burns like a fire that consumes thorns and briars and kindles the forest thickets so that they go up in a column of smoke. The land is scorched by the wrath of the Lord of armies, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one has compassion on his brother. They carve meat on the right, but they are still hungry. They have eaten on the left, but they are still not satisfied. Each one eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh is with Ephraim, and Ephraim with Manasseh. Together both are against Judah. In all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still raised to strike. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. What will you do on the day of punishment? When devastation comes from far away, who will you run for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. In all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still raised to strike. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, 
to plunder and to trample them down like clay in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he plans. It is his intent to destroy and to cut off many nations. For he says, aren't all my commanders kings? Isn't Kauno like Carchemish? Isn't Hamath like Arpad? Isn't Samaria like Damascus? As my hand seized the idolatrous kingdoms, whose idols exceeded those of Jerusalem and Samaria, and as I did to Samaria and its worthless images, will I not also do to Jerusalem and its idols? But when the Lord finishes all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. For he said, I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures. Like a mighty warrior, I subjugated the inhabitants. My hand has reached out as if into a nest to seize the wealth of the nations. Like one gathering abandoned eggs, I gathered the whole earth. No wing fluttered, no beak opened or chirped. Does an axe exalt itself above the one who chops with it? Does a saw magnify itself above the one who soars with it? It would be like a rod waving the one who lifts it. It would be like a staff lifting the one who isn't wood. Therefore, the Lord God of armies will inflict an emaciating disease on the welfare of Assyria, and he will kindle a burning fire under its glory. Israel's light will become a fire, and its holy one a flame. In one day it will burn and consume Assyria's thorns and thistles. He will completely destroy the glory of its forests and orchards as a sickness consumes a person. The remaining trees of its forest will be so few in number that a child could count them. On that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed, justice overflows. For throughout the land, the Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. Therefore, the Lord God of armies says this, My people who dwell in Zion, do not fear Assyria. Though they strike you with a rod and raise their staff over you as the Egyptians did, in just a while, while my wrath will be spent and my anger will, will turn to their destruction. And the Lord of armies will brandish a whip against him as he did when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he will raise his staff over the sea as he did in Egypt. On that day, his burden will fall from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because your neck will be too large. Assyria has come to Ayath and has gone through Migron, storing their equipment at Michmash. They crossed over at the ford saying, we will spend the night at Geba. The people of Ramah are trembling. Those at Gibeah of Saul have fled. Cry aloud, daughters of Galim. Listen, Lysha. Anathoth is miserable. Madmina has fled. The inhabitants of Gibim have sought refuge. 
Today, the Assyrians will stand at Nob, shaking their fists at the mountain of daughter Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power, and the tall trees will be cut down, the high trees felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. Well, Merry Christmas. Uh, it's a heavy passage to look at, especially on the week before Christmas, but let me put it this way. It's the uh, next part in an almost two-part series, so come back next week as well. In many ways, if we're looking at the moon which shines on that Christmas night, and today we're looking at the dark side of the moon, uh, and then next week we're going to kind of see its glow and its glory. Uh, well, uh, it's no secret, is it, uh, that Christmas is a Christian holiday. Christmas is a uh, Christian holiday. Uh, you can just go to the department store and no matter how secular our culture has become, you can still see some vestiges of, of nativity scenes. Uh, even if they're gone, you, if you listen to the lyrics of Christmas carols, you'll know that we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the census data, uh, most people in Australia aren't Christian. And even those who tick the box Christian aren't even church-going Christians, Right? Most Australians who aren't Christian will take the holiday but leave the message. We're all glad when Christmas comes around because it means that we've got some extended leave, some forced annual leave maybe, but we won't actually believe the Christmas story. If you're not a Christian, you might think that Christmas isn't actually for you. You might think that Christmas in one sense is just for Christians, and if you've been joining us throughout Isaiah, you might actually feel the same way about this book. You see, over the last eight chapters, Isaiah has been speaking to Judah, God's people, the Christians of his day, as it were. And he's been speaking to his people about all the other nations, all the so-called non-Christians of their day, if you were to put it that way. So if you're not a Christian, you might feel that, well, this book isn't really for me, is it? God might be speaking to his people, but he doesn't have anything to say to me that just like Christmas, the gospel is just for Christians. But actually today, I want you to realize that Christmas and actually the gospel and Isaiah is for everyone. It's actually for you. Because actually now in these two chapters, what happens is this. Through Isaiah, God now turns and he speaks directly to you. Isaiah starts speaking to Judah for a moment and he looks at Israel and Assyria and he goes, now it's your turn. It's as if he turns to the non-Christians of his day and says, hey, now God has a message for you. So if you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, can I say actually God has something to tell you today? But before we go there, I just want to level with you. It, it is a tough message to hear. And I want to be respectful as I, as I offer it to you. This is what you might call an, an honest conversation with God. It's a bit like a serious diagnosis from your doctor in one sense. It's, it's devastating to hear at first. But it is also the first step to recovery. So, so there's the forewarning. It is, it is a tough message. It's an, it's an honest message, 
but it's an important one. So stay with me, yeah? Because in Isaiah 9 to 10, God is going to diagnose the illness before he prescribes a cure. And much of the cure is actually going to come next week. But we will see some of it today. Today, God is going to address actually two different groups of people. Firstly, a group of people who walked away from God. And secondly, a group of people who actually refused to ever come to him. Yeah? A group of people who, in one sense, betrayed God and a group of people who rejected God. Firstly, look with me at a message for Israel, a message for Israel. Let me tell you a bit about Israel. You see, in the beginning, Israel was actually a really important part of God's family. There was a time when all 12 tribes of Israel were united under God. They were united under a Davidic king. But then, in 922 BC, David's grandson, Rehoboam, he takes the throne and he splits the kingdom in two. We get 10 tribes in the north, which become Israel, and just two tribes in the south, which become Judah. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet is by and large speaking to those two tribes in the south. But now in this chapter, he looks up and he turns and he speaks to Israel there in the north. But I want you to hear how 1 Kings 12 sums up Israel's relationship with God, and it's not great. Israel is still in rebellion against the house of David today. Isn't that tragic? Israel has, has turned against their God. It's, it's actually shocking to read in Jeremiah 3 that Israel is so unfaithful that God even chooses to divorce her. He gives them exactly what they want. You want a life without me? Then have a life without me. God, it, it's sad, right? Like Israel once belonged to God. Gosh, it even grew up in his family. But, but suddenly, when Israel looked out and it saw the threat of Syria or Aram, and then um, Syria or Aram, instead of running back to God, finding help and refuge in God, it, it ran of all people to Assyria. Let me put it this way. In, in many ways, Israel is like that young child who grows up in a Christian family but chooses to walk away from God. It's the church kid who once sung, Jesus loves me, this I know. But now they want nothing to do with him. Maybe you can identify a bit with Israel. If you can, God has something he wants to say to them. And maybe us. Did you hear it when Sam was reading that first reading four times in chapter 9, verses 12, 17 and 21, and chapter 10, verse 4? That repeated sentence in all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike here's god's message to israel i'm actually really angry with you now i know what you're thinking right if you're the person who who grew up in church and walked away you're thinking well adam this is exactly why i left this is why I left church, this is why I left God. It's just all so judgmental. But again, please stay with me. Don't, don't switch off here. Just hear me out. Can I, can I show you why God is angry? And I know it sounds crazy, but can I actually show you why it's a good thing? Isaiah shows us four reasons why God is so angry with Israel. Just, just follow it with me here. Firstly, Israel's proud. 
Just look at what they say in verses 9 and 10. They say, the bricks have fallen, but we'll rebuild with cut stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll replace them with cedars. Can you hear what Israel's saying? We're invincible. We're limitless. We're in charge. Nothing can stop us. No one can control us. In fact, you know, if anyone tries to take us down, we'll just come back bigger and better. We're gods among men. Israel is asserting its independence from God like a son who disowns his dad. Secondly, Israel's unrepentant. In verse 13, Isaiah says, The people did not turn to him who struck them. They did not seek the Lord of armies. You see, God disciplined them like a father with his son so that Israel would turn back to their dad. But instead of turning back to their dad, what did they do? They run even further away. But here's the tragedy, right? If your child is going to run even further away from you, that's, that's heartbreaking enough. But what they do is they take the young and innocent children of your family and they take them with them to the point that verse 17 says, everyone now is a godless evildoer. It's not just the leaders. They've corrupted everyone else. It's as if that son who disowned his father now turns and takes his own kids and turns them against their granddad. Thirdly, Israel is selfish. In verse 19, we read that no one has compassion on his brother. This is a dog-eat-dog world. Every man and woman for themselves. In verse 21, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're they're two tribes in the north, and what they're doing is they're tearing themselves apart. Wickedness has spread like wildfire through Israel. Imagine that son who disowned his dad and turned his own kids against him, that he now tears the whole family apart. Fourthly, Israel is cruel. In chapter 10, verse 2, they're ripping off the most vulnerable plundering the fatherless and all for their own unjust enrichment. It's as if to cap it off, that son steals from the poorest nephews in the family. Now let me ask, if you were Israel's dad, would you be angry? If your son disowned you, turned his kids against you, tore your family apart and stole from your poorest nephews, how would you feel? I know families like this. We think that this doesn't happen, but it does. How would you feel? I suspect you'd feel angry. But only if you loved him. Does that make sense? Like, because if you didn't love him, you wouldn't care, would you? I mean, here's the great irony, right? God isn't angry with you because he doesn't love you. He's actually angry with you precisely because he does. He cares about us so much that his heart is filled with grief when we turn against him. You see, the child act out against their parent, and if the parent just doesn't give them anything, the child cries even more because he, he wonders, do you even care? Be angry with me. Show me something. Show me that you care. What sort of loving parent wouldn't get angry at a child who turns against them? Maybe you've walked away from God or you're at least thinking about it because you don't like the fact that, or you don't like the feeling that he's kind of controlling your life. 
telling you what to do, like, or how to live as if it's some overbearing father. And so you walk away from God. You want nothing to do with him. Just like Israel, you're thinking about divorcing God. You left his home to live in the world, a life without God around. But do you realize that, that everything you can have everything in this world, but if you don't have God as your father, we actually have nothing. In fact, you could have the world's approval. The adulation of all your friends, but it's sawdust if your heavenly Father is angry with you. Isaiah is telling Israel, you walked away from God, and, and in many ways, he's, he's angry with you, just as you'd imagine any loving dad to be. So Isaiah 10 verse 3 asks this question, who will you run to for help? Who can you run to for help? And the implied answer is clearly, no one. Because there's no one greater than God. There's no one who can turn his anger away. There's no one who can save us from his wrath. You see, here's the hard message of Isaiah. It's not the final word, but here's the hard message of this word. Faced with God's anger, there's no one we can run to for help. It is a tough message, isn't it, right? But but it's the honest word of a loving dad who says with tears in his eyes, I'm really angry that you've walked away from me. Maybe that's not your story. Maybe, in fact, you've never called yourself a Christian. In fact, you've never really seen the need for it. I mean, life is good. And if life is good, why would I ever need God? If that's you, you might not identify with Israel, but can I say you'll probably identify with the next group of people. You'll probably identify with Assyria. And God has a message for them as well. Let me tell you a bit about Assyria. You see, between 900 and 609 BC, for 300 years, Assyria was the superpower in the ancient Near East. They had this great ambition, right? Talk about career ambitions. They wanted to extend their empire all the way through the Middle East and down to Egypt. And to affect that plan, they took out anyone who stood in their way, including Israel and Syria or Aram. In many ways, right, if you wanted to be anyone in the 8th century BC, you wanted to be Assyria. Strong, independent, in control of their lives, everything we, let's face it, aspired to be. They didn't have to beg any nation with an empty rice bowl. No, if anyone was strong enough to not need God, it was them. In fact, Assyria was so strong, right, that when Judah was backed into a corner, looking at the threat of, As- uh, looking at the threat of S- Israel and Syria, what did they do? They should have run to God for help, but Assyria's over there, looming so large, oh my gosh, they're so powerful and attractive, what does, Israel- what does Judah do? They run to Assyria for help. Instead of trusting their God to save them, they look at Assyria and go, wow, these guys are strong. So we're going to go to them. And they pledged to Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Throughout all of Isaiah, I actually think they're the most shocking and tragic words. They're actually in 2 Kings 16, but they capture actually what's going on. That's what they should be saying to God. But Judah says that to Assyria. 
So what does God do? He uses Assyria to discipline Judah like a father would his child. Remember, we've seen it over the last few weeks. If you want Assyria, you can't have Assyria. Just be careful what you wish for, right? In verse 5, God used Assyria as the rod of his anger, as the bamboo cane of my childhood, what in Malaysia we might call the ratan, right? You know, this great superpower, which thinks is top, right, is nothing more than a ratan or a bamboo cane in the hands of a far greater God. It's not what Assyria thinks. Look at verse 7. It's not what he intends. It's not what he plans. No, 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 no. Assyria says, no, God isn't in control of me. I'm in control of my life. Verses 8 to 11, no, no, no. I destroyed all these other kingdoms, and I'm the one who's destroying Judah. Verse 13, I've done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I'm clever. Anyone who says that, don't believe them. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures like a mighty warrior, I subjugated the inhabitants. Friends, can you hear the pride in Assyria's voice? I did it all. Not God. In fact, it's pride that sits at the heart of this message in verse 13. God says, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. Okay, can you see what Assyria is doing, right? They're, they're rejecting the thought that there could ever be a god or king over them. That there could be, that they're just so amazed and find it ridiculous the thought that they could be nothing more than, the poor, than a pawn in the chess game of history. Now, Assyria, they see themselves as a the chess master, as the god of their own life. Assyria looks at everything in their kingdom, they look at their whole life which is put together, they look at their own power and self sufficiency, and they say this you know what? I'm strong enough to not need God. Have you ever thought that before? In many ways, Assyria is much like that person who's so in control of their own life that they see Christianity as a crutch for the weak. They might look at their Christian friends and go, you know, look, sure, I get it. When I look at your life, total mess, right? You don't have your life together, so believe in your God. You do you. But not me. I have a stable job. Pretty good pay, big house, happy family, good mates. Just like Assyria, my rice bowl's full. I'm strong enough to not need God. And just like God had a message for Israel, he actually has a message for Assyria. And he has a message for any of us who would say that we're strong enough to not need God. Look at verse 15. Does an axe exalt itself above the one who chops with it? Does a sword magnify itself above the one who soars with it? You know what God is saying. He's pretty much saying this, right? You're not as strong as you think. We're nothing more than an axe in his hand. So, so how could we think that we're somehow the most powerful person in the world? Stop boasting as if you're somehow the master of your fate or the captain of your soul. No, you are but a people under God's power. We're actually all far less in control of our lives than we would care to think. And if we keep insisting on crowning ourselves as king and captain, well, in many ways, it's treason then, isn't it? Just imagine for a moment, a good and gracious king 
who freely shares his entire kingdom with one of his subjects. But that subject then seizes the land, stages an insurrection and crowns himself as king. What do you think that subject deserves? Friends, God is the good and gracious king of our world. And he freely gave us this world to enjoy under him. But just like that subject, we've seized this world, staged an insurrection, crowned ourselves as the king and queen of this world and our own lives. Just like Assyria, we said, you know, I'm the captain now. What do you, what do you then think Assyria deserves? What do you think we deserve? In verses 16 to 19, God says... That servant deserves the anger of the king, and rightly so. The fire of God's wrath will burn against Assyria and completely destroy the glory of its forests and orchards. God's judgment will be like a terrible illness that totally consumes a body. You see, what we find is on that day when God judges Assyria, there's two things that are going to happen, right? Number one, God will save his people. There's the good news. God will save his people. In verses 20 to 26, he'll destroy every reason for their fear. He'll finally bring them home. This is the best line, the most positive line you'll ever find here. The survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on Assyria who struck them, but they'll faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. God will save his people. But secondly, and here's the hard news, he'll pour out his anger on Assyria. Verse 25 says, In just a little while my wrath will be spent and my anger will turn to their destruction. This is that moment where you flick the valve on your pressure cooker and it releases the steam that's been building all day, right? But for Assyria and for everyone who rejects God as their king, it's not steam that's building. It's God's anger. And in verses 28 to 32, we see a picture of what happens when that steam is released. You see, Assyria, it'll look like it's defeating Jerusalem, bearing down on them in the south. But suddenly, God, the Lord of armies, he'll appear. And he'll chop off their branches with terrifying power. And the tall trees will be cut down and the high trees filled. You see, friends, as at first, at first, Assyria will look like, yes, they're right. They are strong enough. They don't need God. It makes sense for them to reject God as the king. Their life is going well. They are the captains of their own lives. It's all working out. But in the end, for all of us who think we're strong enough to not need God, one day, his anger will be poured out against us. Maybe you're a bit like Assyria. You're actually pretty happy with life as it is. There's really nothing more you really need because when you look at your life, you go, mm, I've got it all. And you come to church, your friends drag you here, and you sit here and go, why do they, why do they need this? Why do I need it? Who needs God when life is so good? Who needs a crutch when you're in control? If that's you, can you hear what God is saying to you today? All of us, including you and me, we are less in control of our lives than we think. 
We're, we're a people under God's power. We live under the king. And so if we insist on living as the kings or queens of our own lives, we're, we're actually building up God's anger against us. Please don't boast that you're the master of your fate. No, God is. He is the king of your life. He is the ruler of the world. He is the only one who can truly help us. And every day that we live as puppet masters of our own lives, just like Assyria, we're actually inviting God's anger and judgment on ourselves. Romans 2.5 says this, Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And one day, God will return, and He'll repay each one according to His works, eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Friends, Paul's consistent with Isaiah. Can you hear what they're both saying? If we live without God as the king of our life, one day we will face his judgment. And when that day comes, the same question stands. Who will you run to for help? And the same answer is given. At least here in Isaiah, faced with God's anger, there is no one we can run to for help. Can I pause for just a moment um, and address, a uh, not, not the main point of this passage, but a related point that I know comes up from time to time. This passage raises a really big question that runs right throughout the Bible. How is it both true that God is sovereign and we are responsible? How is it both true that God is sovereign and we are responsible? I mean, isn't it unfair, right, for God to use Assyria for his own purposes and then turn around at the back end and then judge Assyria for doing just that? There's a lot to say about this, but this passage at least makes one important observation. Do you realize that while God is undoubtedly and fully sovereign, Assyria is not some involuntary chess piece? It's not a reprogrammed robot. In fact, if anything, Assyria is saying, no, no, God didn't make me do this. I did it. Verse 7, it's his intent not to fulfill God's plan, but to destroy and to cut off many nations. Can you see what this passage shows us? God's will doesn't violate human intention. God's will doesn't violate human intention. If anything, Divine sovereignty isn't divine determinism. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that he determines the whole world and basically, you know, jimmies it into our head and makes us act like robots the whole time. No, no, this passage is an elegant compatibility of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's the same thing you see in Acts 2. The Apostle Peter proclaims, notice this, though Jesus was delivered up according to what? God's determined plan and foreknowledge. There's the sovereignty. You, Jews and Pharisees, use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. There's our responsibility. 
And we need to hold these two entirely compatible realities together. God is sovereign and we are responsible. And his will doesn't violate our intention. So we can't turn around and blame God and say, actually, God, you can't judge me because you made me do it. No, no, no. We fully intend to live without God, so we're fully responsible for it. And on the other hand, we can't be like Assyria and say, God, you can't judge me because actually I'm the king of my life. No, he is. And we answer to him. Can you see, God's sovereignty doesn't actually make us less responsible. It actually makes us rightly responsible. Because it says our lives don't belong to us. They belong to him. And if we insist on being the kings or queens or rulers of our own lives, we're inviting the anger of him to whom we truly belong. You see, maybe like Assyria, you don't live with Jesus as your king, but you just don't see the need for him. You look at your life and you're satisfied with how it is. You're in control as the ruler of your life. If that's you, then God is saying, I'm actually really angry because you've stolen my crown and you've replaced me as king. And that same question stands. Who will you run to for help? And in Isaiah, at least, the same, at least interim answer is given. Faced with God's anger, there's no one we can run to for help. Not until Christmas, at least. There's a sigh of relief. (laughs) Because at Christmas, God sent us the one person who we can run to for help. He sent us the one man who we can turn to when we're faced with his anger. He sent us a saviour. He sent us his son. He sent us Jesus. Jesus means God saves. And, And the Apostle Matthew writes this, that he will save his people from their sins. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was born? Have you ever wondered why God became man? Have you ever wondered why Jesus came as one of us? Jesus was born as us to die for us. He was born with a mission to bear God's wrath, to absorb God's anger, to incur God's judgment in our place. Jesus was born to rescue us from the coming wrath. If you want to know why the gospel is such good news, if you want to know why why Christmas is the greatest news you'll ever hear, here's the reason. Maybe you felt like listening to the last half hour of Isaiah effectively waterboard us with judgment. This is that moment we, we come up and take in that breath of fresh air. We seize pure sunlight. Our synapses kind of take a little bit, bit of time to readjust. And we go, really? There's hope? You see, if you're not a Christian, here's God's message for you today. It's true. If we betray God or reject God as the king of our lives, yes, it's true. We are building up his anger against us. 
Yes, it's true. There was no one else that we could run to for help. But you know what? Now it's true that there is someone we can run to. Because God sent his only son to bear that anger in our place. It's as if Jesus kind of steps between us and God. And if he redirects God's anger away from us and onto himself, In Isaiah 51, we discover and read of the the cup of God's fury or anger. But then centuries later in Matthew 20, Jesus takes that cup and he drinks it to its dregs so that we don't have to. Can you see the good news? God wants us to be the wayward child who comes home to our dad. He wants us to be the rebellious subject who returned to our king. You see, Isaiah asked that sobering, dark, awful question. When you're faced with God's anger, who will you run to for help? Matthew gives us the answer. Jesus. We can run to Jesus. Maybe like Israel, you grew up among God's people at church. You did sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And yet, you chose to walk away from him. Or maybe like Assyria, you look at your life and actually you're quite happy with it. And the one thing that goes through your head is actually, my life is too good to need God. I'm strong enough to not need God. Can I say, if you belong in either of those groups, God has a message for you today. There is someone who can save you from my anger. There is someone you can run to for help. You can run to Jesus. That is why we celebrate Christmas. Because in the birth of Jesus, God provided us with the one person who can save us from his judgment. Can you see the glory of this? The God who is rightly angry with us for our betrayal and rejection of him is actually the God who is mercifully loving towards us. We think that God sends his anger, and he does, but actually God sends his son to take it for us. The only question remaining is this. Will you run to him? Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, this is a heavy message. It is a dark passage. And yet it is one that highlights and shows our great need. It is one of an honest conversation that you are having with us today. Where if we've walked away from you, if we reject you, you show us actually that the consequence of that is awful. But you tell us, God, that that need not be the end. You tell us that's why you sent us your son, Jesus. So if there's anyone among us today who, like Israel, did grow up within God's people and have walked away, or people who are thinking about walking away from God, why don't we take this opportunity to run back to Jesus, knowing that He can save us and will accept us and love us and protect us?
And if there are any among us today who have never followed Jesus, who look at our lives and see that actually my life is too good to need God. But if you see your need for God and want to run to Him as well, now's your chance to do it. God, whoever we are, we run to your Son. We cling to Jesus. We thank you for sending him who saves us from the coming wrath. Thank you for showing us your love for us in your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.